welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name is Kai, and I'm joined by all of our hosts today. Yeah. How's everyone doing? And we're all still cut noises. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Kai Cade cat collar. <laughs> yeah, try saying that 10 times really fast. Don't. Um, <laughs> Today's episode is all about the sky, and we're going to take you to new heights of science. Um, but before puns that, aren't even coming from me. Oh, <laughs> it's a good day when Kai's bringing out. Before that, we're going to get into some news. So I don't know. Can we do this in alphabetical order? Um, oh, well, K A. D. Oh, that's going to no, be me. No, no, like, not, how, hang on a second. Have we just skipped C A T? The inferior C sound C. <laughs> Can we do this in alphabetical game, order, he says, and go, picks go, go. not the letter picks C. Picks not the letter C. That's no. all right. I've already claimed first spot. Yeah. I'm sorry. K is now the new the new C. Um, and my my study, I was going to say, is exciting, but I'm not I'm not actually sure it is exciting um, because a new study published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. Um, this was a study that was jointly conducted by the University of Adelaide and the University of Essex has found that renting uh, rather than owning a home leads to faster biological aging. Um, and actually, the negative health impacts of renting were shown to be greater than those of experiencing unemployment or being a former smoker. Wow. So as someone who cannot see myself owning a home in the near future, <laughs> this is sad news. Uh, I've rented for the last decade. Anyway, that's fine. Um, so the term biological aging, if you have kind of haven't heard of that before, Essentially, this just refers to the cumulative damage to the body's tissues and cells, irrespective of chronological age. Um, So this study used data from surveys of 1,420 adults in Great Britain, um, and it took into account elements of housing, such as whether a person rents or owns their home, but also building type, uh, government financial support available to renters in that area, the presence of central heating as like a proxy for adequate warmth, um, and, you know, whether the house was in an urban or rural area. And it found that some aspects of housing were linked with faster biological aging, regardless of whether a person owns or rent their home, such as repeated late payments, so whether that be rent Mm. payments or mortgage payments, um, and pollution. But yeah, the main finding was this difference between renters and owners. Um, And the researchers found it was likely that the insecurity and poor affordability of rented homes was driving this link between renting and biological aging. Um, But it is worth noting this was an observational study on an all-white and European population. Um, So because of this, the researchers acknowledge that there are limitations to their findings, um, but they do suggest that they're likely to be relevant to countries with similar housing policies, such as Australia. Hmm. So still something to... Yeah, keep in mind. Not so exciting news. That's, <laughs> that's my news for the week. Um, Carla, the other important uh, K letter. <laughs> no. Sorry, Kat. We'll get um, to you. Carla's just next to me. Second, sorry. <laughs> um, so our brains process lots of information all at once. Mm-hmm. We're often seeing colours, smelling scents, feeling textures all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And because of that, at the way our senses work, um, we start to build associations. Yes. Yeah. So hot things are red or warm toned. Mm. Orange flavor is linked to the orange color. Mm. Um, and this is what's called cross-modal correspondence or a 
cross-modal association. So we have the Boobakiki effect. I'm sure we've heard of that before. No. Boobas no. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> that no. sounds cool. So booba, the word, is like round oh, and kiki yeah. is like okay. sharp. Yes, and I have. Angular. And if you to look at the letters as yeah. well. Oh, in okay. there. But like if you feel it, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of so it's just right. like what? I've heard right. of this before. Yeah. yeah. It's essentially just matching elements from different sensory modalities that like okay. feel like they go together, right? Well, I like the word. Yeah. <laughs> so a study by Ward et al. that was published in Frontiers in Psychology last week has actually found that our sense of smell can influence how we perceive colours. So to test this, the researchers had participants sit in front of, of a screen in a very boring room that was <laughs> lacking any sensory stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't allowed to wear perfume or any deodorant or anything. And the researchers then used a diffuser to de- propel one of six different scents. So caramel, cherry, coffee, lemon, peppermint. Mm. And they had as the control just odorless water yeah. um, into a, the room that the participants were in for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then on the screen in the room, the participants were shown a square that was just a random color. And they had to use two different sliders. So one was yellow to blue and the other one was red to green to change the color to a neutral gray. So if you've played around with like the colors on Word or the lag, um, you can change like the hue and that sort of thing. That's essentially what they were trying to do. And they had to try and get the color to a neutral gray. Yeah. But was neutral different depending on the scent? Am I jumping ahead? I'm I'm so excited. I'm sorry. This is so cool. (laughs) Obviously, they gave them a little bit of time. And then once participants were happy, they're like, yes, this is neutral gray. Mm -hmm. Um, They recorded that color choice and they did this five times for each scent so they could Mm -hmm. replicate it. And a little bit of background. So in a previous study by these same researchers, they showed that each scent, so the ones I mentioned before, had certain color associations. So caramel was associated with dark brown and yellow, coffee with dark brown and red, Mm -hmm. cherry with like pink and red. So Mm -hmm. like we can kind of guess Mm -hmm. lemon would also be yellow, etc. Peppermint green. Yes. So what they found in the study was that participants adjusted the sliders to what they thought was neutral grey um, when they had obviously the sense going through mm. to a slightly more like diff- like a different grey yeah. in comparison to neutral grey. So, for example, um, when there was a coffee scent in the air, the participants perceived neutral grey to be more of a red-brown grey. Mm. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I was going to say, is it in, in agreement with the scent or against the scent so yeah. like when it was lemon did they make the gray more yellow, yellow. or more blue yeah. so okay. more yeah. yellow interesting um so basically their color perception changed based on the smell yeah. of the air mm. oh that's and so... they and it was quite predictable too for four out of five of the scents yeah. so basically which was the... so which was the it was peppermint that was different interesting. yeah i wonder if it's because spearmint has a monopoly on green or something else or apple <laughs> or, or or because like peppermint like some people can be averse to it or yeah. mm. I'm not sure like the smell but yeah that's so cool Odors that's very can influence how we perceive colors apparently mm. oh there you go amazing mm. how cool is the brain guys <laughs> <laughs> anyway cat c <laughs> Well, many of you listeners are likely using the internet to listen to us right now, and our ability to access the internet or even just use a mobile phone anywhere in the world, or pretty much anywhere in the world, Mm. is um, pretty much taken for granted. But the brightness of internet and telecommunications satellites that allow for this global communications networks uh, could pose problems for astronomy. 
and as someone who really likes looking at the stars, mm. that's why I thought I'd, I'd talk about this. Yeah. Um, so the University of Illinois researchers have recently just looked at um, the more recently deployed satellites and mm. they've found that they're as bright as the brightest stars that we can see just with our eyes in the night wow. sky. Um, wow. So they can even be among the brightest things that mm. we can see. And and this is a problem for astronomers and stargazers who are mm. trying to look for bright objects. <laughs> and they're like, oh, this – oh, wait, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from their observations, they learned that uh, Blue Walker 3, which is a constellation prototype satellite, so it's it's not um, the big one that's out there yet, but it's essentially a 700-square-foot array, um, so it's, it's reasonably big, um, and it's it's going up there, and it would reach a peak brightness of magnitude 0.4, which makes it one of the brightest things in the sky. Mm-hmm. Now, 0.4 doesn't sound very high, <laughs> but for context, mm. um, that's brighter than the International Astronomical Union's recommendation of magnitude 7, and the brightest stars are minus 1. So, oh. like, the lower number right. is, is brighter. brighter. So you want to not be below 7. And so the fact that it's 0.4 mm. means that, like, it's way too bright. Yeah. 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 Astronomers are like, no, we've got to keep it to, like, above 7. And right. Yeah, so this this <laughs> is a problem. Um, so Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, is, is minus 1. Um, low number equals bad. Sometimes Venus, actually. You know how we talk about Venus being like the morning star mm. or the evening star, mm. even though it's a planet? Mm. It's because we see it really brightly in the yeah. morning, um, just before sunrise or in the evening, just after sunset, depending on the time of the year. Um, but that can get down to minus four. Oh. Yeah, so it can be really, <laughs> wow. really bright. That's quite um, bright, yeah. But, yeah, just this below one, that's not great. Mm. Um and you might think, you know, there are already bright stars, so like a few bright satellites, oh, what difference is it going to make? But if you think about how many companies are planning on launching, like, constellations of satellites, like that's a whole uh, lot of satellites going into the into the atmosphere and, and above. So, so is the new thing going to be like, you know, like sky riding messages? Are people going to like uh-huh. satellite write <laughs> messages in the sky constellations? Uh, like, well, is that the new rich guy move? Because I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I really hope not. Because then think about how much space junk we'll have. Mm, I don't we already have a lot. I don't yeah. want to think about it. Yeah. Like Starlink already has permission to launch thousands of satellites and that might go up to tens of thousands of satellites. And that's just one company. And that makes up. Like, I think the bulk of number of satellites ever launched. Yeah. Like, it's an absurd fraction of how many satellites are just for communication. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, currently in low Earth orbit, we have just under 5,000 active satellites. And so the fact that one company is like, here are thousands. Mm. Like, that's that's a lot. That's alarming. Yeah. So we just need to think about how we're going to come up with solutions so that we're not just sending really, really bright objects into the sky, whether it's... um, or rather into into space, Um, whether it's, you know, make them more reflective so they're reflecting the light away from the earth or other things. Yeah, just something to consider. Mm. You think actually being more reflective would probably make it worse because they're now reflecting sunlight better than they were? Or like... They're they're thinking about angles as well. Angles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, Being strategic with your reflections. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, very cool. All right, well... We're going to talk about some sky science after our first song. And to start us off, we've got Pink Skies by Lainey. You're listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. That was Lainey with Pink Skies because today we're looking up and talking about our big, beautiful sky. 
Over to you, Katrina. Thanks, Carla. Well, yeah, we've just listened to Pink Skies, but I am asking or addressing the age-old um. question, why is the sky blue? It's not pink. We'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. So, spoilers. Calm down. <laughs> no, I'm looking out the window now and it's... It's pretty oh, it's grey. grey, actually. I was going to say it's blue yeah. right now, but no, no, um, it's not. <laughs> but the short answer as to why is the sky blue is something called Rayleigh scattering. And uh, as white light from the sun passes through our atmosphere, tiny air molecules cause it to scatter. Mm-hmm. All that, all that light, and we get a blue sky. So let's just break this down. That was a very yeah. That's short the answer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the it. next and song, folks. <laughs> Um, So the sun gives out or emits all the different colours of visible light, which we see as approximately white when they're all together. Um, But then as demonstrated by Isaac Newton with a triangular prism, or you have potentially seen with CDs, DVDs, bubbles, or like (laughs) raindrops, Mm. you can split up that white light back into all the different colours. So blue and and violet light have the shortest wavelengths. They all have different – all the different colours have different wavelengths Mm. and the red light has the longest wavelengths. And Earth's atmosphere is composed of lots and lots and lots of different air molecules and sunlight can be sort of redirected or scattered by Mm. those air molecules. Um, And this scattering increases as the wavelength of light decreases. It's like the opposite. You know, scattering goes up as wavelength goes down. Mm-hmm. So blue light is scattered more than red light by yeah. these tiny, tiny molecules in the air. Um, and so during the day, the sky looks blue because it's that blue light that's being scattered around, bouncing off all those different air, air molecules, and it's redirected in so many different directions over the sky, whereas the other wavelengths aren't really scattered so much. Mm-hmm. Um so you can think of it as kind of like, you know, the, the oxygen and the nitrogen and all these things in the air. They're like little tiny mirrors for blue and violet light in particular. So they're all bouncing around off mm-hmm. those mirrors. And that means that not as much blue and violet light is reaching the ground. And instead, it's, it's bouncing around. Um, so a fun, a fun or funny thing is that in reality, violet light has a shorter wavelength compared to blue light. Mm. Um, but... Why do we not have violet skies? That was going to be my <laughs> yeah. next question is if, like you said, violet was the shortest. So why? Because yeah. like purple sky would be. Yeah, it would be, be pretty. Cool. I mean, but you kind like, of get it sunsets it, I feel like if but... that was normal, like we would be talking well, that's about it true. in the same way. Yeah. That's true. It's, really... it's, it's, it's partly because of biology. Yay. Oh, yes. Tell me more. <laughs> well, no. Um, it, it's, it's more just because human eyes are more sensitive to detecting blue light. So we, right. we see the blue. So the skies probably are violet. We just can't see it. Well, yeah. Plus more of the sunlight that comes into Earth's atmosphere is, is blue rather than violet. But, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. the two things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we've just mentioned sometimes you can have pink skies or like red and those beautiful deep, like reds and oranges Mm. during sunrises and sunsets. And I am a total sucker for a pretty sunrise (laughs) or sunset. Me too. (laughs) Having like a veranda at the back of my house with Mm. a West facing like little couch has just been the best slash worst thing ever. I spend 90% of my time in the evening, like sitting there watching the sunset. Oh, that's delightful. Hmm. Um, So the reason that we get these different colours is because when the sun is low in the sky, the light has to travel a longer distance through Earth's atmosphere to to kind of reach us. And Mm -hmm. so we don't see the blue light because it gets completely scattered away. And instead we see this this red and orange light that travels towards us since the light hasn't been scattered as much. Mm -hmm. Um, And so hence the sun and skies look redder at dawn and dusk. 
Um, and, and you may have also noticed, actually, this is something that we might notice a little bit coming into bushfire season again. Oh, but yes. <laughs> yeah, the sky can change color when we have like massive bushfires. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, that sort of red haze. The haze isn't, isn't to do with it. The haze is to do with like kind of air pollution but but the size the Mm. density and and the diversity of particles in the air when we do have these crazy bushfires determine how light is scattered Mm. so anytime you have an addition of particles to the air like from volcanoes so so if volcanoes erupt it's it's a thing Um, and if we have fires it changes the way that that light is being bounced around because if you think about it with bushfires we've we've got the smoke we've got the wood residue we've got leaves we've got other little bits of stuff in the Mm. air So smoke and bushfire particles, they're much larger than gas molecules. And so instead, they they, they better scatter the the longer wavelengths of red light. And so this is actually known as me scattering. (laughs) So a different kind. And and what's happening is is when the particle concentrations get really high, so Mm. there's a lot of smoke, there's a lot of bushfire stuff (laughs) or particles in the air, the me scattering dominates over the Rayleigh scattering. So we're getting more of that red as opposed to the the usual blue. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So we can even see the daytime sky as red rather than Yeah, blue. yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's very, like, ominous vibes. It's <laughs> ominous. It's like, are we on another planet yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. And speaking of other planets, <laughs> um, other planets don't have an atmosphere exactly like ours. Uh, ours is pretty intact and it's pretty pretty good. Um, so the skies on other worlds of our solar system look different. So Mars's atmosphere is much thinner than mm. Earth's, and I could explain why, but <laughs> we're, on, we're on skies today. Um, so it, it's less than 1% of the thickness yeah, of our okay. atmosphere. And because that that means that there's a very low density of air molecules in the atmosphere, they don't really have much mm-hmm. in the way of stuff in the air. It means that the Rayleigh scattering that causes our skies to be blue on Earth has a very, very minimal effect on Mars. It doesn't really mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. So maybe you'd then expect it to have like maybe a faint blue colored sky. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the haze of the dust, so remember how I said haze is more linked to pollution yeah. because it's so dusty yeah. and, and all these dust particles remain suspended in the air, even on the daytime, Mars, it the sky kind of appears more yellow. Maybe you've seen pictures of, of the sky on Mars. Mm-hmm. It, it is kind of like that that yellow butterscotch kind of <laughs> color. <laughs> um so yeah, it's it's because these these larger dust particles absorb the short wavelength blue light as well. Um, but during a sunrise or a sunset on Mars, the sunlight travels a longer distance through its atmosphere, and it's kind of like the thickness that we have normally here on Earth. Oh. And so, so it's like blue. Yeah, their sunrises Whoa. and sunsets are blue. That's cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, Whoa. So, I love yeah. that they're opposite. It's like during yeah. the day, it's kind of a yellowy, reddy sort yeah, of color, yeah. and night it goes blue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. oh, wow. Amazing. Um, whereas if you think about the moon, for example, maybe you've seen pictures of, of people and, and things from the moon, um, the, the sky doesn't appear to have any color. It's just mm, kind of black, whether yeah. it's in the daytime yeah. or, or nighttime. Um, and that's because the moon's atmosphere is so thin. So yeah, like Mars is thin, but nothing. the moon is so, so thin um, that it pretty much doesn't have one. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And when the air is too thin for gas molecules to sort of collide with each other, like they're not bumping into each other because there are so few there, mm. uh, we call it an exosphere instead. So they don't really have an atmosphere. Mm. It's just an exosphere. Um 
And because of the lack of an atmosphere, it means that sunlight isn't scattered. So whether it's daytime or nighttime, mm. it just appears black, the, the sky. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it, it'd Less be exciting. Yeah. I prefer our situation. <laughs> yeah. It'd be the same on like Mercury with no atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. We can't really check out Venus too well. It's got a very <laughs> thick atmosphere, very thick, hot, dry mm. atmosphere. Um, so that'd be pretty, pretty intense. Um, but I just thought I'd end with the sun during the day and then the color of the sun. Um, so I was I, just supposed to be like, yeah, what's the sunset of the sun? What's the sky like at sunset on, on the, the sun? sun? <laughs> but there wouldn't be a sunset <laughs> on the sun. That's, that's not how that works. Yeah. And does the sun have an atmosphere? Yes, it, it does. Like a little, yeah. like it's the, a little bit of one. Yeah, like the outer layer of the sun is like an atmosphere. It is like one, but it's yeah. But it wouldn't change kind of with sunset and sunrise because there's nothing for the sun to set behind. No. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and it's, um, it's, you so know. what were you going to tell me about the sun? <laughs> if not that. Um, well, just kind of the fact that you may notice that, that the sun, when it's very much overhead, so like at noon, for example, it mm. appears white. And that's because the light travels a, at a shorter distance through the atmosphere to get to us. It's not coming at us from an angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's scattered very little. Even even the blue light is scattered very little. So that's why it kind of like the actual sun looks white. Mm. But, um, you know, when it is coming at us from an angle, not only is the sky, like, reddish, we see the, mm. the sun actually change colour yeah. as well. Um, and you may notice that the sun appears to change colour in different seasons. So if, if we just kind of recap... I haven't noticed that. Ah. I don't stare at the sun. I was told not to. <laughs> Fair enough. That's good advice. Um, but if we recap the fact that the angle of the sun changes throughout the course of the day and we get different mm. colours, the angle of the sun also changes True. throughout the year. Yeah. So we get um, that sort of change in seasons. Plus, we get beautiful long sunsets in, in winter, mm. like much more compared mm. to to summer and that's mostly again because of the angle Mm. yeah so we get beautiful skies and it's all thanks to science (laughs) i love that (laughs) well we'll be talking more about the sky and its wonders after this song this is clouds by bunt and nate traveler Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. Um, that was Clouds by Bunt and Nate Traveller, because we're talking all about skies today. We're super, super high. Um, no, we're not. Wait, no, what? <laughs> um, anyway, I should stop talking. We're going to go over to Cade. Oh, no, I'm laughing too much. <laughs> I was wondering, I don't know, I've been trying to think of sky puns as well, and I was just... Yeah, normally, I was just like, abort mission, just, we're really, really high. We're not. No, we're high on science. We're yeah, high on totally. This is great. No, so I want to talk about something that's formed in the sky, and I want to talk about snowflakes mm. um, because I think snowflakes are really cool and really uh-huh, but um, tush. There you go. That's my pun. That wasn't even on purpose. Well, I was more thinking the more you snow, the more you know. The more you. <laughs> the fact that you had to explain that for us. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna. No. Okay. Snowflakes <laughs> because they're really cool. So I really like snowflakes because they their shape essentially tells the story of where they've been, right? I like their their shape 
you know, everyone always talks about, or I feel like I always hear people talking about, oh, snowflakes, no two are alike. Like that is the one fact about snowflakes, <laughs> right? If you ask people, it's like, oh, it's a no two. It's like, no two trees are alike. Yeah. No two rocks are alike. No two humans are alike. Like why do snowflakes have this, you know, which is to say, I'm not saying that snowflakes are more boring. Like, I just think we're focusing on the wrong thing. I think they're beautiful because the way a snowflake forms, like, it literally tells its story. So let's just rewind and sort of explain that a little bit. So we know that snow or is is ice is frozen water, right? Like, that's kind of Mm -hmm. a thing. But, like, are snowflakes just simply frozen water? Like, what makes them different to, like, hail? or ice cubes, right? Like when we think of a snowflake, it doesn't look like a cube. Like it's not boring. Like why are snowflakes so interesting? And fundamentally it comes down to ice cubes or hail is when you get liquid water and it freezes. Snowflakes form when water vapor freezes directly. Mm. Kind of like skip the the liquid phase and you've got water vapor. So, you know, in our atmosphere, we have all sorts of things, um, predominantly nitrogen, but we have water vapor um, in our atmosphere. And when our atmosphere hits what's called like a saturation point, Mm. um, you know, you can get rain or if it's cold enough, you get the water vapor freezing directly into snowflakes Mm -hmm. and then it snows and snow falls down. So I I just have a question and you may or I may not know the answer. Oh, no, you you may already (laughs) like be addressing this anyway, Mm -hmm. in which case spoilers. Mm. Um, But is this is this sublimation? Because like we talk about carbon dioxide as skipping the liquid step yeah. because it actually we, we cannot get carbon dioxide um, as liquid. I don't know. I, I didn't read the word sublimation used when I was yeah. reading about it, this whatever stuff. Whatever the opposite of sublimation Yeah, because I was thinking, or, yeah, or I, mean, I mean, it's the opposite. I mean, yeah. But yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I'm not sure, yeah. but yeah, it's essentially that sort of thing where you yeah. where it skips the the liquid phase um, and goes straight to the frozen solid, and so yeah. we get these really really cool shapes. But we still that to me is not enough to explain why they look the way that they look, <laughs> right? Mm. You're like, okay, mm. cool, but you know, if you think about the classic snowflake, like I don't know, if one of you were to describe sort of the classic snowflake, would you like? I don't know. To me, I think of a snowflake and it it looks symmetrical and it's also got six sides and like six arms, Mm. six branches. And it's like, why, why do they all have six? Which first of all, that's kind of a misconception that's very interesting. And, you know, if I have time um, at the end, I'll sort of explain where this has maybe come from. But, you know, snowflakes you can get in all sorts of different shapes and Mm -hmm. stuff, but this is just the most famous Mm -hmm. because they're stunning. Um, But there's a very good reason why these six sided or these six pronged things form and it comes it's it comes down to the basic like physics or chemistry of water and water mm. molecules right so if you think about a water molecule you've got we all know h2o right two mm-hmm. hydrogen atoms and a single oxygen atom um and so that means that every single sort of water molecule has 10 electrons eight from the oxygen and one each from the hydrogen this mm-hmm. becomes important so bear with me if you, if you if you're like oh my god they're talking about electrons where are we no no it's worth it so things to know the two electrons um or sorry the, what am I trying to say? So the oxygen, right, has eight electrons. It's got two of them that it kind of keeps close to itself. That's not mm-hmm. really important. And then it's got six on its outer shell. It wants eight. So it needs two more electrons, mm-hmm. right? Hydrogen, each hydrogen has one mm-hmm. electron each. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of you end up with this jigsaw puzzle situation where every hydrogen is like, hey, I kind of want a second electron. And every oxygen is like, hey, I want some. And so they all share. And so yeah. you end up with this situation where if you think about um, – 
a water molecule, right? You've got a Mickey Mouse head, right? You've got yes. your oxygen and yeah. then you've got your two ears. And this is important, right? Because the two hydrogens, once they've covalently bonded to the oxygen, they slightly repel each other mm -hmm. and you end up with an angle of 104.5 degrees. Now, this mm -hmm. is important. This is important, <laughs> but it's a Mickey Mouse head. Yes. Um, it's also important to note, we now have this situation, right, where our oxygen essentially has 10 electrons and each hydrogen has two. Mm. This means that even though overall water is not charged, the majority of the charge is kind of been is yeah. going to sit with the oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. ten is more than two, yes. so ten electrons is more. So you've got the hydrogen end is sort of positive, and the oxygen end is sort of negative. You may have yeah. heard of water being polar, and yeah. this is sort of why there's this split of charge. So there's all of this chemistry that we need to know. The hydrogen is sitting at this particular <laughs> angle, and also there's this spread of charge. What does this all have to do with snowflakes? Why am I making you think about this? <laughs> it explains why the classic snowflakes have these six sides, because every snowflake essentially starts with a seed, which is a hexagonal snow crystal. And these hexagons are made up of six water molecules. So remember how they're polar. Mm. So due to this negative charge in the oxygen, the oxygen in one molecule is going to be attracted to the positive charge yeah. in the mm. hydrogen of another molecule. Mm. And so a weak bond called a hydrogen bond sort of forms between these. This happens until six of them form a hexagon. Because if you think about a normal hexagon, that's 120 degrees at mm. each yep. corner, right, on the, on the hexagon. So they're not completely flat. But if you think about like you're trying to make a fence, like a circular fence or a hexagonal fence, right, and you've got these planks of woods and the rules are, oh, you've got to shrink it, shrink that angle slightly. If you just slightly make it like a chair shape and you kind of end up with slight angles. Hmm. Sort of like a squished, if you've got like a flat hexagon and squished it up. Yeah, and squished, yeah. you pinched every corner so it was a little bit tighter mm. and it wouldn't be completely flat anymore, but it would still be a hexagon, mm. right? And so this is what water, water does. It bonds to itself in these shapes and you end up with these hexagons. Then from here, this, this snowflake or this snow crystal will like fall through the air and it will hit other bits of water, like other water mm -hmm. molecules um, throughout the air that then stick to it. And based on just like pure like probability, right, the bit of this hexagon that's sticking out the most mm -hmm. is the corner. So it's the place that's most likely to, to hit. hit something yeah. and have it bind. And then as more and more water molecules kind of form these little arms poking out from each corner, it's sticking out even further, mm -hmm. right? So the arm mm -hmm. just keeps growing. And so it's just like probability of that happens. And then you might, um, each snowflake as it falls, the atmosphere is going to change slightly as it falls. So changes in things like humidity or temperature mm. or just like even like wind and stuff, that's going to affect how this snowflake grows. So you might get a branch here and you might get a, you know, um, split here or a little like cone forming here. Mm. The reason they look symmetrical is because those six points are close enough together on an individual snowflake that essentially they're experiencing those same conditions mm. as they fall. Right. So all six points will grow in most, more or less the same way. Yeah. Um, yes. But the reason every snowflake is so different from each other is because two falling snowflakes, even in the same area, are going to experience different enough conditions mm. um, that they're not identical. Right. And so it's just it's just probability based on angles and electrons and physics, like as to why they branch out and grow into these like stunning shapes. Hmm. And so, yeah, this is why they're all like, you know, no two snowflakes are alike and they all look like this. But where did this idea come from? This mm. probably started in 1885. There was an American meteorologist named mm -hmm. Wilson Bentley. Um, and, you know, he was sitting outside his farmhouse catching snowflakes on bits of black fabric to put under mm. a microscope attached to, like, if you can imagine, giant camera back in that mm. day, right? Mm. And so on January 15th, 1885, he took the first ever photograph of mm -hmm. a snowflake. 
Um, and so this guy, he loves snowflakes. He never married. He never moved out of his mum's place. He basically just took pictures of snowflakes for 50 years. <laughs> that was, that was his name. Um, yeah, great. He took more than 5,000 pictures of snowflakes, wow. um, a selection of which appear in his book Snow Crystals, which is still in print, by the oh, way, you can wow. buy. And so this guy has essentially cultivated the public's perception of snowflakes. And here's mm. the catch. He only, and I quote, uh, he only selected flakes in pristine condition with uh, uncommon beauty mm. and symmetry. Uh. So this guy has gone, I'm going to pick all of the ones that mm. have this hexagonal kind of branching, yeah. stunning shape. And they've cultivated. The Whereas ones. like, yeah, you, in reality, there are rods, there are cones, mm. there are like flat things. There are, there are snowflakes that are so much more boring. And I watched this video on YouTube. There's a guy, he's a physicist. Um, and he was the snowflake consultant on Frozen because Frozen oh, had a snowflake wow. consultant. Oh, because awesome. apparently it's okay to shoot snow out of your fingers as long as they're real snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> then people will buy it. Like, this is a real job. And there was this video on YouTube and you can, like, look it up. And this guy, he's watching, he's forming snowflakes in the mm -hmm. lab. And he's like, oh, yeah, so here's my little seed to start off with. And then uh, you can see it growing. And, oh, I want it to branch. So I'm just going to turn the humidity down and drop the temperature slightly. And, oh, look, there it happens. And he can just predict in real time what's about to happen before it wow. happens. Wow. And so that's the level of understanding that these people have about, like, <laughs> snowflakes and how to. Anyway, I could talk for just so much longer about snowflakes. And I'm going to actually have to stop myself because. <laughs> <laughs> We're out. I'm out of time. Um, but yeah, well, very, was, very amazing. That was some pretty cool science. Yeah, cool science happening in the sky. This guy has some cool science. It's all I've got. I need to stop. Unbelievable. Amazing. Oh. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're because we've just talked about snow, well, really snowflakes, this is Snow by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was Snow by Red Hot Chili Peppers. And you are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, where we have been bringing some sky focus, well, sky focus, some sky <laughs> science is what I mean, uh, into focus this wonderful Friday afternoon. Uh, so, Carla, hopefully you can focus better than I can right now. Um, what sky science have you got I was you got actually going to be talking about something I focus on a lot. So... I spend a decent amount of time looking at the sky. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a long commute, so I'm always on trains, trams, in the car, and I love spending time outside. So the sky is just always mm. there for me to look at and get distracted by. Um, but it never gets old because it's never the same. Mm. And I know we just talked about snowflakes being overhyped for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think because the sky is always there, we just kind of forget how cool it actually is. Mm. So obviously we have sunrises and sunsets. We've talked about that already. We've got clouds and then nighttime, you can see the moon, the mm. stars, and even the whole Milky Way if you go somewhere without light pollution. Mm. Um, and if you actually haven't seen it before, I highly recommend. I think it put my life into a lot of perspective. <laughs> I've seen like, the Milky Way. Yeah. Mm. Incredible. Mm. Um, but even on a clear day where the sky is blue and cloudless, not like it is now, um, there are planes and birds flying over. So there's always something happening up there. And sometimes the things that are happening up there influence what is happening down here for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to pose the question. Would you consider yourselves summer or winter people? Ooh. Or autumn or spring? But I feel like it's quite polarizing. I, I would say I'm a winter person. Okay. Um, and part of that is because of the sky, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Kai likes the sky in winter. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. Uh, <laughs> I, instinctively, I was going to say a winter person, but then mm. the more I think about it, the more I'm like, actually, I don't know if that's true because I'm always in a better mood when mm. it's warmer mm. and sunnier. But 
I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. Mm. I'll hold on to that. Can I say autumn? I'm yeah. an autumn person. Yeah, because I my body doesn't really like the heat, but also doesn't really love to be super cold. But and why not spring? Hay fever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, just but the, the ferocity with which you said that. <laughs> yeah. Not spring. <laughs> I think as Melbournians, we kind of have to embrace all weather. Yeah. Yes. Times and seasons. So. Absolutely. I guess ultimately, though, I consider myself a summer person. I love the sun. And I think sun exposure has gotten a bit of a bad reputation because of the risks of developing things mm. like skin cancer, etc. Mm-hmm. But being out in the sunlight is actually so good for mm. our health. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when sunlight hits a particular part of the retina in our eyes, serotonin is released, mm-hmm. which is one of our happy hormones. The other one is dopamine, um, which offers us more of a temporary sense of pleasure in comparison to serotonin, whose effect is a lot more long lasting, right? Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that higher... No, do you have... <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I didn't hey, say anything. You can Kat just say looked something. at me and laughed. You can um, say something. You had a face. I didn't and now listen, to have our a listeners face. can't I was like, see well, that face. No, I know, and they don't need to. That's why I didn't say anything, because the neuroscientist in me is like, well, actually. And That's I'm like, no, thing. what you're saying is is like correct enough for the yeah. point of the story. More generally, um, yes. Um, but basically, higher levels of serotonin are typically linked with higher mood levels. And... Yeah, but, like that's kind of the distinction is yeah. it's less a long-term, short-term thing. It's more serotonin is more mood and dopamine is more reward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you think of like a short-term sort of like, oh, I do a thing and I feel good and yeah. rewarded for mm-hmm. doing that thing, that's dopamine. And we Whereas, call that a like, dopamine hit, right? Like, yeah. Is that why we, well, it's yeah. because of, yeah, it's correlated with mm. this big release of dopamine yeah. from the, you know, VTA to the nucleus accumbens. Yeah. Like it's very well documented. <laughs> and so, because it's not all over the brain and dopamine does all sorts of things, but it's that particular yeah. bit and that's what we associate it with. So reward versus like long-term sort of like mood which is yeah. your serotonin anyway, yeah that's my face Ser- serotonin sunlight that. <laughs> I love it. Sorry. um <laughs> basically yeah so limited exposure to sunlight can lead to what we call seasonal affective disorder mm-hmm. or sad yeah i love, I love the acronym <laughs> yeah sad my favorite you got the um, but it's also referred to as like winter blues or winter depression mm. um but effectively it's just characterized by low mood and it typically coincides with winter time where mm. there are fewer levels of uh, sorry, fewer hours of daylight. Yeah. And so the sun will mm. generally makes us happy and make sure that we're healthy and enjoying <laughs> our time. Um, but as well as that, the sun is a great source of vitamin D, um, which we also need to have strong bones. So it's been shown to reduce um, cancer cell growth, um, help control infections and reduce inflammation. And feelings of anxiety are associated with vitamin D deficiency. So even having like five to 15 minutes of um, sunlight a day Mm. can be enough to like combat those side effects. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then also another benefit of sunlight is that it also allows us to sleep well as it supports melatonin production and that whole Mm. um, hormone pathway. So Mm -hmm. um, it helps to time our circadian rhythm. So the internal um, body clocks that we have um, that allow us to have good quality seat, sleep. Sorry, And so this is particularly true if you have sun exposure earlier on in the day because mm. it allows mm. your body to figure out when it needs to go to bed okay. um, and can reset your sleep clock. Mm. But it's not only our sun that occupies the sky that influences our lives down here on Earth. We also have the lovely moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and interestingly, quite a number of people believe that the moon has some kind of power over us, <laughs> including apparently 81% of mental health professionals. 
81 percent yeah which i was quite surprised is, by is that like globally is that in a certain place i'm, ju- I'm just interested in yeah, yeah. Like, i i didn't look that much further into yeah, okay. it but that's like that's yeah the number that's been reported yeah i think yeah that's a decent number of people um but i think we've probably all heard of things like emergency room visits car accidents even crime rates like supposedly peaking during full moons yeah mm. i i have heard that that's a thing and i've also heard that it's definitely not a thing but everyone yeah. thinks it is oh. because of confirmation bias interesting mm-hmm. And I'm going to get into that in a second. <laughs> but I'm going to take a step back first. So all of this lunacy comes from stories about like werewolves and vampires in mm, Europe yeah. um, that were thought to be active during full moons, as well as back in the day, um, early philosophers and historians posed the idea that because our bodies were so full of water, because we're about 80% water, mm-hmm. um, and the moon influenced tide, then maybe this could explain the effect of a full moon on human behaviour. So it was also thought at the time that the brain was the moistest organ. <laughs> moistest is yeah. just such a word. <laughs> it is, yeah. Especially followed by organ. Or, yeah. Yeah. Moistest organ. organ. Um, so that's why it was believed to be the part of the body most I mean, sensitive to changes in move, moon phases. Is it the most moist organ? Is it no. not? Because you said was thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think so. You're the neuroscientist. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of moisture in there. There's you a got lot of moisture s- everywhere uh, in our yeah. body. Cerebral spinal fluid and yeah. blood and stuff. But yeah, exactly. That's yeah. my next thought. There's like the spleen has a lot of blood. The stomach yeah. when it's full of like yeah. bile. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. <laughs> anyway, um, but basically the reason why the moon controls the tides is because of the gravitational pull the moon and the earth exert on one another. So the moon's gravitational pull causes the oceans to peak on the sides that are both closest and then furthest to the moon and then low tides in between. Um, the moon's gravitational pull only dictates open bodies of water, whereas obviously the water in our brains is very much so contained. Yeah. Mm. Um, plus the gravitational effects are too small anyway to influence our brain or behavior in general um and alongside that the same gravitational effect is observed for new moons so when we don't see the moon as well as full moons so that theory is debunked Mm. the full moon doesn't change anything in our brains (laughs) um and there are actually psychologists um james rotten and ivan kelly that conducted a meta-analysis of 37 studies that tried to link the full moon with behavior um, and they actually found that it wasn't related at all. Um, there was there one study that tried to link um, crime rates with um, the full moon, but they found that full moons during that study happened on weekends when there are more likely. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Kai was correct and yes. I was not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it is, but that's interesting because like, it is definitely a thing that I've heard mm. and I just kind of, yeah, took for granted that it was a thing. But yeah. um, Like the snowflakes thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> Um, gosh. Yeah, I'm glad that the moon doesn't control my brain. That's a bit of a weird thought. Um, well, you have been listening to Sky Science uh, with Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. If you loved our episode or want to catch previous episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And this last song is Sundream by Rufus DeSalt.